From Cafe, welcome to Cafe Insider. I'm Preet Bharara. And I'm Ann Milgram. How are you, Ann? Guess what's coming up? Uh, St. Patrick's Day. Yes, tomorrow. It's a big day in our household. What will you be doing? What will the Milgram household be doing? Well, I am trying to find green cupcakes or cookies for tomorrow. Of course, I could make them, but I'm. You I'm lost them in your house easier. somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> no, I need to. I need to <laughs> Check find under them the in bed. New York City. <laughs> they must be somewhere nearby where I could buy them. Yeah, and you know what else we're going to do? Uh, tonight we're going to do our March Madness basketball bracket. Nice. Or maybe tomorrow night. I'm not sure. We're doing it this week, obviously. <laughs> How about you? Did you do anything for St. Patrick's Day last year? I guess we were, we had shut down, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think we cooked corned beef and cabbage and potatoes and made some soda bread maybe. But yeah, we had, we had just shut down. So I don't, I don't. You know, I know we usually go to a St. Patrick's Day parade um, in the town where my mom grew up, South Amboy, New Jersey, but that was canceled last year and and this year as well, of course. And so, you know, hopefully next year we'll be we'll be back at it. Yeah, that would be great. So now for the worst segue of all time, should we talk about we continuing investigation into the governor of New York, Andrew yeah. Cuomo? So since last we spoke, there have been additional allegations. There has been additional calls for his resignation. Virtually the entire Democratic delegation in New York, both members of the Senate on Friday afternoon, Senator Gillibrand and Senator Schumer, along with, I've lost track now, it's something like 14 or 15 House members have called on him to resign. But I guess first we should talk about some of the additional allegations. What, what do you make of this reporting, which by the way is not uh, fully confirmed, I don't think we have identities, but there are additional women who have claimed Contrary to what Andrew Cuomo has insisted upon, that he never touched anyone, that he actually engaged in unwanted groping and touching of a young woman in the employee of the governor's office. What's your reaction to that? So there, there are two new allegations that have sort of surfaced in the past week. One is a former State House reporter, a woman named Jessica Bakeman, who wrote a New York Magazine story saying that Cuomo touched her inappropriately while posing for a photograph, and that he made a number of comments to her like, you know, I thought we were going steady, and and sort of sexual banter almost. And one of the things I thought was was notable about that, and, and again, she didn't work directly for him, but this goes more to the question of was there a culture and sort of a hostile work environment surrounding the governor? She wrote, quote, it's not that Cuomo spares men in his orbit from his trademark bullying and demeaning behavior, Bakeman wrote, but the way he bullies and demeans women is different. And she goes on to talk about how it's just a form of his exerting power and control. And she said she was embarrassed by by what happened. And I, and I think that that is a relevant allegation that the investigation should look into it because, again, it sort of is consistent with a number of the other things that we've heard people say. The second one, which is the one you're talking about now, I think is more complicated because it seems like there is a young woman who had made an allegation that Cuomo had basically had groped her essentially in the governor's mansion. Had she'd been called in to you know assist him with his phone or with technology? And and remember, we also heard that with with another one of the young women who worked in the governor's office that the governor had asked for help with his telephone. But you know, in this specific instance. It's complicated because the woman, uh, it appears, ha- is represented by a lawyer. That complaint that was with the governor's office was then sent to the Albany police as a potential sexual assault. 
because again, the allegation is that is is groping, but the woman has not um, indicated that she wants to cooperate with the police and go forward. And that ha- her identity is not known. It hasn't been confirmed by any other news outlets. The police have said that they received a referral from the governor's office. Do you find that interesting? Do you find do you find it interesting that the governor's office itself made the referral to the police department? What was striking to me about it is that it's clear that there's a a significant issue for investigation as to whether or not the governor's senior staff followed the law in terms of doing investigations when allegations of sexual harassment were made. And so it, it appears that there's a real question as to whether or not they did. So here, it's almost the opposite, which is basically going saying- Going above like, and beyond, do you think? Exactly, exactly. And I think they're covering themselves right now to basically say, you know, and, and particularly at this moment, it's very complicated for them. Even if they had done everything right, it's very complicated because the public nature of this, which technically would fit under misdemeanor sexual assault, you, you don't see cases like that frequently charged. But it could potentially constitute a crime. Again, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't. It feels to me like that's that's not going to come about. There has been reporting, and again, you know, it's not confirmed. It's just reporting. But it, it's this last allegation with the unidentified woman that put a lot of people in the congressional delegation over the top. And so, if that's the case, I think it's something to watch. Look, and I think the allegations, if you want to separate them into two categories. You know, one where it's language used by the governor made people feel uncomfortable, and the second is unwanted actual touching. It's separate and apart from what you think the distinctions are in the law or in sort of propriety, the governor himself has kind of made the case insistently that the one thing he did not do was touch anyone inappropriately. And so when we see what the report says that June Kim and his colleague are working on, you know, sometimes people hang themselves with their own insistence. And that's another reason why I think that's that's quite important. I agree with that. I, I also think it's worth it's worth just stopping to say that both would be forms of sexual harassment. One could potentially also be a form of crime, forcible touching or sexual assault, but they both sort of fall in that broader bucket of treating women, subjecting them to unwanted, unwelcome um, conduct because of their of their gender, their sex. And so I think your point is also well taken about, you know, Cuomo has sort of admitted to to one thing and said, well, I didn't intend it to be interpreted the way it was. But the other piece he has he has adamantly denied and repeatedly denied. And I wonder also, Preet, if you were doing this investigation, I mean, I think I think you would not only look at these women who have come forward and made allegations, I think you would also ask the question of, are there any employees with whom the governor had what he would term a consensual relationship? And so, you know, I think he has, he's denied it. Well, he answered that question kind of evasively, right? Did you, do you see his, I'm sorry, did you hear his press conference? No, I saw the statement by one of his senior people who said he had not had a relationship with an employee. But again, how you define relationship may also be subject to interpretation. What did he say at the press conference? I think he said something like, he was asked the question, was there anything that, you, did you have what you perceived to be a consensual relationship with any of these women? And my recollection is, I don't have it in front of me, so forgive me if I get this wrong. At first he was evasive about the question, and then he said something like, I, I have not had an inappropriate relationship with anyone. Th- thereby leaving the door open to there having been a consensual relationship, which 
or interactions. No, I don't want to speculate right? about that. Right. But, I, but I, I think, look, it may also just be something he doesn't understand. But if you're the governor of the state and you have a relationship with an employee, there is an implicit problem in that, someone who reports directly to you. If they don't report directly to you, you know, I, I would go, I would have encouraged him to go through an ethics person, get an ethics opinion on whether he could have a relationship with someone in state government. But someone in the governor's office um, would be deeply problematic. And look, I think that these are just questions for the investigation. They're just they're things I would I would look at. But you know, your your point is well made that he's drawn such a distinction that this could end up being being a challenge. Do you think pre what what role? I mean, one of the things that happened last week before I think you know Senator Schumer and Gillibrand and a lot of the other members of the House delegation, not all the Democrats, but not all, but but a significant number called for Cuomo's resignation. Is that 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 assembly in New York state said that they would open an impeachment investigation, which is not bringing impeachment charges yet. It's it's basically opening an investigation into that. And what I, what I wondered about that as a potential trigger is that that investigation, they could call witnesses, they could subpoena documents. I mean, the investigation being done by the state AG, Tish James, right now, there will be a public report at the end, but right now, you know, June Kim and Ann Clark are doing interviews behind closed doors, right? So they're not releasing public information right now. But if the assembly did it, it would be public hearings, right? So that that really changes some of this dynamic, I think. Well, I guess they could choose to do it one of a number of ways. Remember we saw in the first impeachment proceeding against Donald Trump at the federal level, first people like Dan Goldman and others conducted behind closed doors, depositions, interviews with witnesses. And then some subset of that became part of public hearing. So they could choose to do it that way. You know, the, what you mentioned raises other questions as well. With the state AG investigation being run by outside lawyers, Ann Clark and June Kim, as you mentioned, do they ask the assembly to hold off? Sometimes it's the case that in criminal matters, you don't want there to be public hearings going on at the same time and witnesses going into, you know, multiple interview sessions and perhaps contradicting themselves. You want a clean record. I don't think here they have a basis to tell them to stop. And I think it would look unseemly to tell them to stop. But it's it's not a great thing if you're conducting an, an outside investigation and trying to be thorough. If there's some other body that's doing the same thing, plowing through the same ground, asking for the same documents, asking questions of the same witnesses, it creates a, a bit of a, of a mess, doesn't it? Yes, I, I very much think that. And I agree, if it was criminal, you would ask you would ask that others hold. But I, I also agree that because it's civil and it's really an, an investigation, sort of an employment investigation that June Kim and Ann Clark are doing, I don't think you could ask the Assembly to stop. And remember, the Assembly has oversight authority over over Governor Cuomo, and their investigation would also include nursing homes. And so the nursing home scandal. So it's, it's broader. I have a question for you, Ann. There's reporting from the New York Times, and again, emphasize it's just reporting, in which they did a lot of interviews of a lot of people who worked in the governor's office, and this is what the report says, quote, in interviews over the past week, more than 35 people, that's a lot of people, more than 35 people who have worked in Cuomo's executive chamber described the office as deeply chaotic, unprofessional, and toxic, especially for young women. They said, for the most part, they did not personally witness overt sexual harassment. But here's another quote from the article, quote, but many said that they believe that Cuomo and other officials seemed to focus on how employees looked and how they dressed. Twelve young women said they felt pressured to wear makeup, dresses, and heels because it was rumored that was what the governor liked, end quote. My questions to you are, 
A, what do you make of that? And B, do you think that Ann Clark and June Kim will want to or will need to interview all those people, dozens and dozens or perhaps even scores of people, to complete their investigation? Well, let me start with the second question first. And I think the answer to that is is yes, that I would. If I were doing the investigation, I would reach out to all of them. Um, some of them might be willing to cooperate. Some might not. You know, there are people, and I've had this experience with high-profile sexual harassment matters. There are people who will talk off the record anonymously with the press that will not talk with investigators. But uh, yes, I would reach out to them because I think the element of that statement that would raise questions for me and that I would want to understand what happened would be this this idea that there was pressure put on young women to dress a certain way in order to to please the governor, right? And again, that would be treating someone differently based on on their gender and it could be unwelcome and unwanted, right? And so, you know, I would want to understand more about that and I would also want to understand who conveyed that to these young women, right? Because again, when you start thinking about is there a hostile workplace, the culture, you know, you might be more hesitant to report to a senior person who's told you, and again, this is a hypothetical, I probably shouldn't even do it because I, we really don't know the facts here yet, but you could imagine a situation where, you know, there's there's an intermediary, an intermediate boss between like a, a senior boss and and you, and the intermediate boss tells you that you have to dress a certain way, you have to act a certain way for the big boss, and then something happens between you and the big boss that makes you feel uncomfortable. How how comfortable would you feel going to that senior person to make an allegation, right? And so again, it goes to some of these questions of of culture, um, and also you'd want to ask these young women if they if they'd worked in the governor's office, what they saw, what they experienced, what whether any of this had happened to them. And that's that's definitely relevant. On the second question, Preet, I mean, I, I would be curious to know what you think, but the problem I have with articles like the New York Times wrote is that it's it's super vague. Multiple people said it's chaotic. Well, you know, a chaotic workplace, I think we've all worked in them. Not a crime, <laughs> not necessarily sexual harassment. And so I, I didn't like the way it lumped all those things in together and lacked specificity. So it sort of felt a little bit like, and look, again, I would look into this as an investigator, but I I don't know, you know, half of that sort of sentence you read would just basically be a bad boss, not necessarily someone who had, had violated the law. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, you have to be very careful about news reports, and sometimes, sometimes news reports are wrong, and sometimes things get conflated and lumped in together, as you say. So I think we, we need to be very careful, which is why when we talk about the reports, you know, they're meaningful. They tell you something. But until I think we see something in a public report, we have to be a little bit careful but, you know, the report does make me think that I should, in my mind, revise a little bit the timetable. Because if it turns out there are scores of people to be talked to and even more documents and emails to be collected, the investigation might take a little bit longer than I think I had initially thought. But by the way, uh, we should note also that whether or not they've reached all these other folks that are referred to in the New York Times article, it's going pretty quickly. Uh, you know, one of the main accusers who we've already talked about, Charlotte Bennett, her lawyer put out a statement in the last couple of days saying that she met with investigators via Zoom for more than four hours. According to the lawyer, quote, she detailed her allegations of sexual harassment and provided the investigators with more than, now this is interesting, with more than 120 pages of contemporaneous records, as well as other examples of documentary evidence to corroborate her accusations against Governor Cuomo and his senior staff. Four hours sound about right to you? And that quantity of notes, is that unusual? 
I would say four hours or more. I'm not surprised at all by that. With a lot of the main complainants in the Mavs case, we were with them at least four hours, some some a full day and some multiple times, depending on how long someone's worked in a place, how much. And of course, you go through those documents together. So you understand, you know, who was emailing who, how did this conversation start, if they're, you know, depending on, on what the documents are. What's interesting to me about the documents will be we don't know. Again, are those allegations that were made by the young woman to senior staff members about Cuomo? Are they emails from or text messages from Cuomo to her? Like, we don't know the nature of those documents, but it, it strikes me as it's going to be important that there's a significant number of documents that the lawyer is saying corroborate what the young woman said. Can, can I read a little bit more from the statement of the lawyer? Because this is new information that I have not seen reported before. Quote, One piece of new information that came to light today, this is according to the lawyer, was, sorry, I have to read this, was the governor's preoccupation with his hand size and what the large size of his hands indicated to Charlotte and other members of his staff, end quote, presented without comment. (laughs) And now you're going to ask me for comment. I love it. And you may Um, comment. (laughs) No comment. No. That's an interesting thing to put in the lawyer's statement. No. Can we just pause on that for one second? So you represent a client. Just as this geek out as lawyers for a second, and you go in, and there's a four plus hour meeting, and you know that some of this information is going to come to light later. What's the thinking in deciding to put in your statement, you know, a provocative allegation like that into the public record? Look, here's my view on these things the investigators, the lawyers cannot ask the lawyer for the woman whose name is Deborah Katz, is the lawyer, they can't ask Deborah Katz or the young woman not to say that they met with them by, you know, they're entitled to go out and say it. But it isn't helpful when you're doing an investigation like this for the lawyer to go out and and start dropping details like this. And it feels like it's intended to sort of fan the flame. And again, you know, the investigator's job is to find out the facts of what happened. You know, they're not necessarily striving for a specific outcome. The outcome will be decided whether, you know, Cuomo is forced to resign, is he impeached? Like, they're, they're looking for the facts. And so it, it adds something that if I were the investigators, I wouldn't have been thrilled to have had that out there. Now, that said, they totally can do it. One thing that could be a positive is that the investigators are looking for other women to come forward. And so, and the lawyer did say in the lawyer's statement, look, if anybody else has information, we urge you to come forward. So it could be possible that reading that jogs the memory of another woman who said, yeah, it was kind of weird. He always talked about his hand size, which I took as sexual innuendo, but I just disregarded. And so, you know, maybe in that way it becomes relevant, but I don't know. I mean, obviously the investigators would want to know about it. And it might be something where the investigators would then say to other people they interviewed, you know, at the end of the interview, you know, did you ever hear, you know, the governor mention X? Did you ever mention Y? Did he ever, you know, and sort of go through the litany of categories if if he's known to have said things repeatedly. You know, there's a few other weird things about how the governor is defending himself. You know, he said recently a couple of things that are strange. He invoked the, this notion of cancel culture which is bizarre to me. And I, I saw think that. Helps what do cause. you think of that? Yeah, it's a very, like... It's an invoking of, of a phrase now that people want to use to deflect criticism from themselves or deflect accountability. And so, because in some circles, this idea of cancel culture is viewed disapprovingly, if you find yourself in a position of trouble, you just say, oh, it's cancel culture, as if that's a justification for what you did, or that's a proper criticism of what other people are doing. It's kind of silly. What's happening with Andrew Cuomo, based on the seriousness of the allegations, 
has nothing to do with quote unquote cancel culture. Then he also said to try to make himself a man of the people. He said, I'm not part of a political club or the political club. Andrew Cuomo has been governor for 10 years. His father was governor for three terms. He married a Kennedy. He was a cabinet secretary for Bill Clinton. Someone remarked recently, he's not just part of the political club. He is the political club. So I don't know what that kind of argumentation is doing for him. The other thing I would say is there are more people in the congressional delegation who are calling for Cuomo to resign now than there are in the general public. I think the polling is is mixed on this. And I get a lot of responses to things that I post on social media saying, well, why don't we wait for the investigation? Let the investigation unfold. And I think, you know, there's merit in that. And I think it's important to indicate to the public also that the investigation is not only important so that the governor gets a fair shot. It's also important so that the victims get a fair shot. If there's a premature closure to everything with these things sort of hanging out there, I don't think that works, you know, a proper fairness to the people who have made allegations that people in the public think that they can just ignore because they've not been confirmed by any investigation, right? So individual politicians can make up their minds about what has been conceded and what is enough to call for someone's resignation. And I respect that. And maybe I would also if I were a politician. But there is also good reason to say, you know, we want to make sure the investigation continues, comes to a proper conclusion, and all of that be made public so that we know what the truth is. One thing I've I've been thinking a little bit about, and I do think it's complicated, there's a few things happening here. The first is you've got allegations about not disclosing the full number of nursing home-related deaths, which are, are significant and important in the midst of a global pandemic. Then you've got these sexual harassment allegations that are now on two hands, right? So it's not it's not one woman coming forward. It's not two. You now have, you know, depending on how you count it, six or seven women who are coming forward. Then you have a really significant difference. When I've done internal investigations, as a rule, they may be generated by a public report, but then they become quiet. And so you really are free to do the investigation. You 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 have the time to do the work that's needed, whether that's, you know, I've done them in as short as three weeks. I've done them, the Mavericks investigation, we were in Dallas for three months. And I think it was six months before we released our final report. And so this is because he's the governor and because of the public nature of the allegations, you that can't happen. And so there is a real tension between this question of accountability and fairness and having the allegations vetted and also questions about a governor who's in the midst of these two very significant investigations during a global pandemic, the legislature asking his about his ability to lead, particularly, you know, the sort of New York state legislature. So I hear you. And I, I think the best thing that could happen would be for this investigation to move incredibly quickly. It just as, fa- and, and again, uh, you know, and maybe I should amend what I said earlier that I would want to talk to all of the young women who talked to the New York Times and the Washington Post. But maybe the most important thing that the investigation can do right now is to figure out whether it can substantiate existing allegations and any of the new allegations that have come in and sort of, you know, maybe even do it in parts. But it it really is, the time is is essential here. The final thing I want to say about this, because I've been seeing conspiracy theories, and I posted this on Twitter myself, you know, whatever you think of Andrew Cuomo and whatever you think of Donald Trump, Donald Trump has nothing to do with Andrew Cuomo's woes in this. And when I posted that, I saw a lot of people indicate suspicion based on the timing, worry that this is a ploy to get Andrew Cuomo to leave so that a future governor will pardon Donald Trump for crimes that might be brought against, for allegate for criminal charges that might be brought against him by Cy Vance. 
And I just want to say to folks, you know, let's not become like people who are supporters of Trump and believed every ridiculous conspiracy theory and judge Andrew Cuomo based on his own actions. Um, so the other, the other case that is drawing national attention, as it should, is the trial of uh, officer, former officer Derek Chauvin, who killed George Floyd. The, the jury selection process is going pretty quickly. The trial was scheduled to begin on March 29th. Here we are on March 16th, and obviously this might change even during the course of the day, but nine jurors have already been selected, and I think the goal is to have 12 who sit, plus I think four alternates. So they're going faster than expected, even though there's been a rigorous vetting process, lengthy jury questionnaires, lots of questions about whether or not people can be fair because the case has been so much in the news. There's a motion to delay the trial and maybe also a change of venue uh, brought again by the officers, defense lawyers, because among other things, and I'm, this is what I've been dying to ask you all week, just a couple of days ago, the city of Minneapolis announced a settlement with George Floyd's family uh, in connection with his death to the tune of $27 million. And what that does to the jury pool, what that does to the fairness of the trial, I've asked you now compound questions, Anne. <laughs> what do you make of the speed of jury selection the settlement and the impact on the trial. I misjudged the speed that this would go at. I thought, you know, three weeks might not even be enough. And so I, I thought it would take longer. So it is moving faster than I expected. I would attribute that to the judge who is as no-nonsense as you get. Judge Cahill, he was, I think he was a deputy when Amy Klobuchar, who's now a senator from Minnesota, when she was the DA. He has a lot of experience as a prosecutor. He also has experience as a defense lawyer. And he's clearly, you know, he's described by his former law partners and others as extremely decisive, right? And so it's very clear to me that he's just moving through this quickly. So, but it, it is moving with, with speed. On the second point about the $27 million settlement, I wanted to ask you about this as well, because <laughs> I you, asked you could first. not pick, I know, I know, but you could not pick a crazier time to release that, which by the way, everyone should understand that these conversations would have begun shortly after George Floyd was murdered last May. So, uh, you know, this isn't, it isn't like this idea of there being a civil settlement between the city and the family of George Floyd. It wasn't like this idea just happened last week. These, you know, the family was represented, um, I believe shortly after Floyd's Floyd's death. And so what my my sense is, and I, I'm curious to know yours, is that the city understood that if you wait until after the trial, depending on the outcome of the trial, the settlement could be it could change, or there could be arguments that the settlement should be more. There could just be a lot of sort of politics around the settlement. So it, it in an ideal world, it feels to me like you do it. It, you know, you do it before a trial, I I think, um, or you do it far after. But the sort of right on the eve of trial felt really strange to me and, and probably not well thought through. Yes, that's my initial reaction. And, you know, you also worry about the, the overall fairness of the trial and, and how it infects the jurors. But it kind of makes some sense, right? Settlements happen in, in cases on the eve of trial. But usually that settlement is in connection with the actual trial that's taking place. This is a parallel thing, but it's obviously very related because there's risk for both sides, right? To, to the extent you're negotiating what the final number should be, and I hate to be crass about it because no amount of money is going to bring back George Floyd, but you know, there is a settlement. It is about money. If the trial goes one way, the settlement will be for a higher, you know, an even higher number. If the trial goes a different way, then the risk shifts to the other party and the settlement could be for a lower number. So, so both sides 
you know, have some inclination to want to finalize this before the criminal trial, because although the settlement and the trial are two separate distinct things running parallel, one has a bearing on the other. And to be fair to the city, don't you think they also probably would like to close this chapter yeah, as yeah. the case goes to trial? Yeah. So, and, so And do right I, by I the just, family, right? And do right by the family. But they, they should have, it's the kind of thing where it does make you scratch your head because this is the kind of thing where it wasn't a secret when the trial was starting. And you would think that the city and the city attorneys would have tried to have the case settled far in advance of the, of, or at least a month or two ahead. Like the, the problem that they've created, and again, it gave the defense lawyer an opportunity to stand up and say, you know, th- there was just a full round of press around a $27 million settlement. And that settlement implies that the city, and and fairly so, that the city has accepted responsibility for wrongdoing. And when you see a dollar sign like $27 million, it's fair to assume that there's, you know, there's an assumption of significant wrongdoing by the city. And so that, for a defendant who's tr- who, and a defense lawyer who's saying, I want to make sure my client gets a fair trial and that people don't think he's guilty before we start, that's the kind of thing that you would want the ability to ask jurors about, like, does does the fact that the city paid $27 million change your view of whether or not he's guilty or innocent? And can you put that aside? And coming to your your last point, the judge is going gonna, is gonna to have to bring the jurors back to ask them about this. And so Judge Cahill said when he was ruling, he didn't immediately rule on this request to sort of change change venue or to push the trial back, but he said, quote, I wish city officials would stop talking about this case so much. And he agreed that the developments were concerning. And so, you know, again, you don't want to make it more complicated for everybody in that courtroom. And I think the city did that. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying it was a mistake to get it done before the trial so much as the timing really puts everybody, I think, in a, a tough position. No, there's another wrinkle, and you and I talked about this last week, and you made a great point with respect to this issue as well, and that is, would the murder in the third degree charge be reinstated? Remember, prosecutors initially brought a third degree murder charge. That was thrown out. It went up on appeal. The prosecutors really want that charge, and even though it's a lesser charge, to murder in the second degree, and the reason they want it in, and as we discussed, it may better fit with the evidence, and it gives jurors a choice, and murder in the third degree just to remind folks, is proven when someone, quote, causes the death of another by perpetrating an act eminently dangerous to others and evincing a depraved mind without regard for human life. And you could be sentenced to imprisonment for not more than 25 years. And you have the odd circumstance of the prosecutors asking for the lesser charge to be in, not the defense lawyers. And suddenly, in the last few days since we last recorded this program, the judge has reinstated the third-degree charge which is interesting with respect to what the ultimate result will be, but is also interesting in connection with the discussion we were just having. You've actually seated some jurors who were seated before they knew that there was this additional charge, and that's you know worrisome. And, and there's reporting that suggests that the prosecutors themselves have been worried that that should have been resolved before the seating of particular jurors. I would be worried. I think you probably would be too. And again, just so folks understand, you you want to make sure that the trial, if Derek Chauvin is convicted, that the conviction stands, that there be no basis to argue that the trial has to be done over. For a variety of reasons, you always want that to be the case. Um, and I think even more so here with such a high profile and you know, difficult case to try, right? I mean, and I mean difficult in in the sense that I think it's it's going to be emotional and and hard for everyone. And so, one of the things I would probably do, and I assume that the 
prosecutors and the judge will do here is that they already have to bring back all the jurors. And this is not ideal, but I would wadir them on both this question of the civil settlement and also on adding murder in the third degree. Because I, again, I think you want the record to be clean. You don't want there to be any potential issues. And and people should understand there are always issues in trial. There are always appellate issues. There are always things that happen. But what you want to do is make sure there are as few as possible and that if you see them as they're happening, you fix them. One other quick point, Preet, that it's worth noting that the second-degree murder carries a potential sentence of up to 40 years. Third-degree is a potential sentence, as you said, of up to 25 years, and manslaughter is up to 10 years. And so there is a, a significant delta between those three charges, and you're talking about you know the the differences being being fairly significant, and so again, the jury won't understand the sentencing ramifications. But in terms of understanding, the prosecutors want that sort of option, uh, the third degree, because there's potentially large sentence that would go with that, and it's obviously a murder conviction, not manslaughter. So it's a more significant conviction, and the defense would like to take out that that sort of middle option and sort of force the jury to decide between is it intentional or is it basically manslaughter. Or is it, or is it none of those? And so it, again, it's just sort of I think interesting for folks to think about this strategy that that goes on behind this. Yeah, I mean to bring home the point more about the applicability of murder in the third. And look, I think there's a very good chance they get murder in the second. But how much the prosecutors probably feel that third degree murder fits? You know, let me just read to folks what is the potential instruction to the jury at the conclusion of trial. This comes from another case in Minnesota. And, and jurors will probably be instructed along these lines, told, you know, that you have murder in the third if Derek Chauvin's intentional act was eminently dangerous to human beings and was performed without regard for human life. Jurors will also be told, quote, such an act may not be specifically intended to cause death and may not be specifically directed at the particular person whose death occurred, but is committed in a reckless and wanton manner with the knowledge that someone may be killed and with a heedless disregard of that happening, end quote. And I'm guessing the prosecutors are thinking, you know, the defense will loudly argue that even though Chauvin had his knee on the back of the neck of George Floyd, and there were lots of signs that this could potentially cause George Floyd's death, it's not necessary to show that he intended the death. All that's necessary is to show that he was doing this thing without regard for human life and he was reckless in doing so, that's just easier. That's a charge that they have in the bag. And they'd like to be able to have that one in the bank, right? Yes, I agree with that very much. And and as you sort of have, have noted, with murder in the second degree, you have to have the intent to affect the death of that person. And where that will become, the defense will argue, I mean, and we, we should talk just for one second about what the potential defenses are, because they've already, they've already, I think, shown that a bit in jury selection. But the the way to think about second degree is that what the defense will argue is that Officer Chauvin, he legitimately had the right to bring George Floyd to the ground. His intent was to bring him to the ground to subdue him because he was resisting or whatever whatever the officer will say. And they're going to argue his intent was not to murder George Floyd. And so what has the prosecution has to prove is that even if, you know, and I don't know whether they'll concede that the original intent was, was lawful to bring him to the ground, they're going to argue that at some point during that nine plus minutes, the intent changed to murder. They're going to have to address an issue that just doesn't exist when you think about murder in the third degree. It's just, it's different, the depraved mind and without regard for human life. Um, the defense, just really quickly, I mean, the, the sort of 
preview I think we're seeing a little bit is this idea that Floyd had underlying conditions and may have also, we know that the officers believe that he was high, that he was, and and the toxicology lab came back with, with fentanyl. And so he had fentanyl in his system, and the defense is going to argue that, you know, Officer Chauvin didn't commit this this murder, that George Floyd died because of these other these other things. That's going to be a part of the argument. So they're going to have an intent argument, depending on which charges they're attacking at the particular moment. And then, as you say, they're going to have a causation argument, that it wasn't actually the knee in the back that caused the death. It was this other stuff and the narcotic in his system, and probably we'll be calling experts and others, and that'll be a fight at trial. So, Preet, one of the other topics of conversation related to this murder trial that's going forward is Bill Barr, and that it's been reported that when he was attorney general, he rejected um, a guilty plea that had been negotiated by the the city and state for Derek Chauvin to plead guilty and get a 10-year sentence on the charges. And the defense wanted Barr's agreement that the feds would not prosecute him because, of course, both state and federal prosecutions can take place um, in most in most states. There's no double jeopardy issue. What, what do you make of that? It might seem odd to people why the attorney general, the Department of Justice would be involved when you're talking about a local prosecution. But as you point out, you know, Derek Chauvin and his lawyers in situations like this want a global settlement. They want to know that they have repose, that they're settling this once and for all with respect to a guilty plea and a term of imprisonment, and not worry that the Justice Department will come in later as it is entitled to and charge much more serious crimes. You know, it seems to me to be sensible to have turned that down so quickly after the events happened, before a complete investigation was done. I think the perception, I think to the extent the reporting says Bill Barr was concerned about the perception, I think it's correct. It would seem too quick. It would seem perhaps soft on Derek Chauvin in the moment. And a fuller and fairer investigation, I think, needed to be completed so people could consider which other charges, like were actually brought in this case, more serious, murder in the second degree, you know, notwithstanding the finality that you would have gotten and the certainty you would have gotten, which is an important consideration when you're trying to hold people accountable and bring them to justice. Um, do you agree with that? I do agree with you. I do agree with you. And I think the way you explained it is is pitch perfect because I think a lot of people would say, well, you could have, you know, if the feds had agreed, they could have saved the family the pain. It would have been resolved. But at the point that this conversation was was taking place, there had not been a full investigation. And the federal government, again, they have the ability to investigate and potentially bring charges. And I think they would be, you know, most attorneys general would be wary of, of sort of giving that away. And obviously, it's worth noting, Chauvin could have still pleaded guilty on the state charges, right? He's, he still could have done that, taken the 10 years, and then gone to the feds and said, like, please don't prosecute me. But what he was looking for was a sort of global settlement to make sure that it was completely done. Right. It, it's not the case that Bill Barr was necessarily, you know, saying no to the deal. It depends on how you phrase it. What the DOJ was probably saying is, you know, knock yourselves out, do whatever plea you want. We cannot commit at this early date before doing more to not going forward with our own charges. So you're going to have to take that risk, which is different. And by the way, a lot of people do take that risk. And I think it's different in, in such a high-profile case like this. Um, I think the calculation is different for a defense lawyer. Though I will say that 
you know, the Department of, of Justice traditionally has had a pettit policy where they allow state and local prosecutions to go first and only bring federal cases if they think that the interests of justice haven't been vindicated. And we may get to see this. I mean, I, I suspect, Preet, just very quickly, that if if there was an acquittal in this case, that the feds would, you know, potentially move forward. It's been publicly reported. A grand jury has been impaneled for, you know, potential federal charges. There are federal civil rights charges that could be applicable here. And so I, I think... You know that that's certainly that's certainly a part of of what we could see. By the way, and we um, there are other things to talk about. I think we'll get to them in the weeks to come. One is that Manhattan DA Cy Vance announced unsurprisingly that he's not running for re-election. What does that mean for the investigation of Donald Trump and potential prosecution of Donald Trump? And Preet, can I just say that yeah. there may have been people in the United States of America that were surprised by that announcement, but it wouldn't be any of the Cafe Insider listeners, <laughs> because we've be. been talking about that now for weeks. It would not be. And, and then there's another development that we'll talk about in the coming days, and with respect to the death of Officer Sicknick uh, on January 6th. Yes, charges were were brought, and I think there's a lot for us to, to sort of unpack in the coming weeks. Preet, I think before we close, we should cover another recent scandal that the media has not has not really significantly covered. Well, that's what we're here for. On one recent morning, a cookbook author, Julie Van Rosendahl, noticed something peculiar about her breakfast. She lives in Canada, and she was using Canadian butter, and the Canadian butter that she spread on her waffles didn't melt like normal. Uh, so apparently she was eager to determine if something about her yellow spread had changed. So she decided to conduct an experiment she bought a dozen slabs of organic French and Canadian butter, uh, laid them out on her counter, and pressed down on them with her index finger. The French and organic butter were soft, but most of the Canadian slabs were firm like clay, so the mystery deepened. Yes. And and by the way, I sort of think this may be something that would only happen during the pandemic where you have a lot of time to do butter experiments at home. But she she was eager to figure it out. So she went to social media where you can often find answers. And she wrote, quote, have you noticed it's no longer soft at room temperature? She tweeted out, something is up with our butter supply and I'm going to get to the bottom of it. So she's an investigator, Preet. Yeah, so she, she went to social media, as, as, as many a good investigator does, and a lot of Canadian folks responded, offering up their own theories. So after she received, uh, you know, a lot of tips, Ms. Van Rosendahl, she figured out a hypothesis, which was to help meet the rise in demand for butter during the pandemic, the theory goes, Canadian farmers were changing the diet of the cows to palm fat-based supplements. Yeah, and that change had a had a consequence, unintended consequence, she theorized, which is that it increased, it basically changed the, the point at which butter melts, and basically it made it harder to spread. And so her theory churned up a lot of controversy. It's butter gate. Did Canadians you say churned every- up? Did you say churned up? <laughs> I did. All right. I did. <laughs> Canadians everywhere expressed a mister expressed a mixture of fury and commiseration. One food analyst even dubbed the scandal Buttergate and wrote, "The dairy industry is undermining the moral contract between the sector and Canadians." But the Canadian dairy industry knows <laughs> knows what side their bread is buttered on. It was oh, quick. Come to- on. <laughs> was quick to respond to the allegations. A lobbying group called Dairy Farmers of Canada launched an investigation and asked their members to consider alternatives to palm oil supplements. <laughs> and 
And still some other Canadian Twitter users found Buttergate to be more of a nothing burger. (laughs) (laughs) One user tweeted, butter too hard? First world problems. I I expect a special counsel will be appointed imminently. I feel like people are groaning at at our our butter jokes. Um, I should give credit here for this. This great story came from a New York Times article by Dan Bolefsky. And then, of course, the puns are our own and those of the Cafe Insider. Excellent team. By the way, I saw I saw a movie called Butter this weekend about the sculpting of butter. It's pretty good. What would you make if you could make any butter sculpture? What would you sculpt? Obviously, I would sculpt a penguin for you. (laughs) I'm good. You're good. (laughs) I'm good. So, and we'll be back next week to talk about all these stories that will continue to develop. Send us your questions, and we'll do our best to answer them. Send them to letters at cafe.com. Take care, Preet. See you, Anne. Bye. That's it for this week's Cafe Insider Podcast. Your hosts are Preet Bharara and Ann Milgram. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Thank you for being a part of the Cafe Insider community.